0: Hey, and welcome back to Dorm Room History. I'm your host, Eric Andreessen, and today is episode one of our new series, Patriots Rising. Let me pose a question to you before we dive in. What's the most powerful nation or empire ever? Now, you might say Rome, or the Aztecs, or the Chinese, the Persians. I mean, the list goes on. And there have been a myriad of different peoples who have had their, you know, proverbial moment in the sun. The Chinese, at one point, compared to everyone that was around when they were, and compared to all those before them, were technologically, militarily, and even in many ways, societally, above the cut. The Romans, the Greeks, the Carthaginians, and the Egyptians, you know, of the Mediterranean world, all had that moment, too, where they were simply the cutting edge of human civilization. And you have to realize, before I continue, that when looking at history, we have to rid ourselves of our current conception of human advancement. You know, we live in a period where we all seem to think that as a species, that we continually are on an almost linear, you know, if not exponential rise of advancement. When we think of the quote-unquote future, we have this almost back-to-the-future-like idea of what that future is going to look like. You know, we feel like we have everything we have now, whether that be our transport, or technology, or what have you, that it will either be better or completely replaced, you know, with some outlandish, almost unimaginably crazy, awesome thing. You know, the 3D shark that comes out and bites you at the movie theater, the flying hoverboards, the flying cars, whatnot. That's sort of our perception in pop culture, but also ingrained in our society that that's how the future is going to look. But while you may be right in the sense that you know, if you drew a line from the first people that came onto the scene, you know, in the Serengeti. To now, there's no doubt that in abstract, it has been a clear and constant rise. However, when looking at humans in the age of civilization, so give or take about 7,000 years ago to now, it has hardly been that constant rise. One civilization may rise, take the Greek city-states, and then it vanishes. The Persians, the Assyrians, all the way up to ancient China and Rome, compare these and, you know, list them in order of size and sophistication taking out the the variable that's did it from scratch handicap and you realize that the list of greatest and best is not in really a chronological order and if you take that list and add modern civilization that list becomes engulfed in these modern civilizations you know those old arcade games like pac-man you, know you go to the arcade where there's, a, there's like a list of the top 10 high scores And every now and then, you see the entire scoreboard is just taken up by one person, you know, the same three initials, maybe I was really good at it, so EMA, EMA, you know, record number one through record number 10. That's what this would be like if we included modern civilizations. But if you take into account another variable, then the list becomes a lot more mixed again. And that variable is influence. While it's easy to see that most developed nations today, and the nation states in themselves are a relatively new idea, these nation-states are technologically and militarily superior and probably destroy any other civilization from the days before, with little to no effort. But do they have the same influence that these other older, more ancient civilizations had? While some of these civilizations, take the Romans, the Chinese, the Ottomans, or the Mongolians, they wielded influence on comparably less people than today, But when you take into account the fact that the world was just smaller population-wise, some of these had direct and indirect influence, if not full-fledged control, of sometimes up to a quarter of all living humans at that time. That's a lot of people! Now, with all of our new variables in place, I can say with a great deal of certainty that the most powerful and strongest civilization that has ever existed in human history, to this date, might be the modern United States. The United States controls trade that reaches into every corner of the planet. Not just, you know, the government policy where where are we putting our military and where are we having deals and trade deals with. Think about how, you can, how easy it is to find a McDonald's across the globe. How easy is it to find American movies, American music, American art and culture littered throughout the world? Whether this is a good thing or not, I'm not making a statement on that. I'm just saying that we have this influence on a cultural standpoint But we also are able to exert economic control and the fact that the United States holds a nuclear arsenal capable of ending humanity. You know, Rome had legions and that's fantastic, but they didn't have nuclear weapons that could strike anywhere on the Earth within eight minutes. And ironic that a lot of these nuclear forces are called Minutemen. And on top of that, the United States has been a sub for scientific advancement. But how did this country get to where it is now is a completely different discussion than the one I'll be having today. You know, it's one thing to talk about, oh, you know, America, what happened after World War I, the Lend Lease Program, what we got after the both world wars, how we advanced our policy. Those are different conversations for a different day, and maybe one day we'll have that on this show. But today I'm diving headfirst into the inception of the United States of America. And a lot of us, especially in America, know the basic story that's taught in schools. There was a rebellion, you know, July 4th, Declaration of Independence, and there's a triumphant victory, and the American myth begins. But that's barely surface level, if not just in itself full of inaccuracies. We have to go way, way, way back to the age of exploration. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Now this is, again, a controversial moment in history. Was he even the first to make it to the New World? Arguably not, it's pretty much proven that he was not in any way. There's a conspiracy theory full on that, that in the 1400s the Chinese maybe gotten to the western edges of, of North America and maybe South America, but I'm not going to get in to any sort of conspiracy theory like that. But it starts out with the Spanish and the Portuguese, and they begin to colonize, and again... Not saying what they did was great. Not saying they did the right things, and we know that they didn't. You know, Montezuma, a bunch of the things that they did, a bunch of the conquistadors did some truly horrible things. But this begins a land grab, and the French and British look to capitalize on this newfound territory. You know the story of the Mayflower. It goes to Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts, and different civilization you know, different sort of settlements begin to pop up. You have Jamestown. You have a bunch of other ones along the Virginia and Massachusetts coast. And that sort of establishes the British colonies in the area. That's their way of, you know, claiming that land for themselves. And the story of how different colonies sort of formed is weird. There's different people who go and mainly of different religious sects. Remember, these are Puritans, and that was sort of the start of this country, is that the American people that we know now were just religiously different. They were Puritans that believed that, you know, England itself was diving into into sins and it was falling apart at the seams and they came to this new land, looking to practice their religion without being persecuted. But we get down from these, you know, the fourteen hundreds to the fifteen hundreds into the sixteen hundreds, and Gordon Wood did a great piece called The American Revolution, and it's not that long, so it's quite an easy read. But it starts off with this quote, and this sort of really encapsulates the relationship between the colonies and the British crown. Quote, A century and a half of dynamic developments in the British continental colonies of the New World had fundamentally transformed inherited European institutions and customary patterns of life and had left many colonists believing that they were seriously deviating from cultivated norms of European life. In comparison with prosperous and powerful metropolitan England, America in the middle of the 18th century seemed a primitive, backward place, disordered and turbulent, without a real aristocracy, without magnificent courts or large urban centers, indeed, without any of the attributes of a civilized world. So essentially, what we have here, and we get this sort of thing we jump, you know, I'm kind of jumping from Jamestown right into the 1700s. But this is important because that's essentially what the British government does. It supports these early colonies, but then largely leaves them to their own devices. And for whatever reason, probably to do with constantly expanding empire elsewhere and other matters to attend to, the British crown and government sort of left the colonies that they established, again, to their own devices. But that dynamic began to change with the new King of England. George III who became king in 1760. Whereabouts the British government was already beginning to try to reform itself and in doing so according to George S. Wood, quote, thrust its imperial power into the changing world with a thoroughness that had not been felt in a century and precipitated a crisis within the loosely organized empire, end quote. And that's the big key. We sort of think about the British being this tyrannical force that had its had its, you know, ducks in a row, and they really didn't. It was relatively unorganized. There was not a clear direction most of the time in what they wanted their policy to be. But when you look at a quote from John Adams, it really starts to paint paint a picture of how these sort of subtle events in the middle and the beginnings of the 18th century truly start to shape what would later become a full-fledged revolution. This thrust can be attributed to this John Adams quote, which he says, you know, after the war, quote, the revolution was affected before the war commenced end quote. And the events laid, you know, these events laid the seeds for, as I said, would later become an open rebellion to the British crown authority. Now, we'd mentioned that American life was slowly deviating from that of English life. And after a a good century and a half, the differences between the two were night and day. But the Americans still did retain a solid bit of British culture and life. You know, powdered wigs, knee breeches, uh, and most importantly, they still exhibited, quote, monarchical behavior and dependent social relationships, end quote. So while many things were different and the, the Americans were starting to beginning to see themselves as a different people completely and culturally and socially, they still did have enough connection to sort of, you know, put a line between the two. But changing aspects of daily life and the culture of the colonists was just the start of a huge changing in the colonial relationship with the mother country. Another big thing is that the population of the colonies began to boom. And they were just multiplying and multiplying, so much so that they were the fastest growing population in the whole Western world. From 1750 to 1770, and this paints a good picture, the population doubled from one to two million in these colonies. And of course, with this size, it also increases their importance to the British crown. You know, sort of drawing the British crown's eyes back to these colonies that's, that they sort of left to their own devices. People were having babies left and right, but also non-English pe- people were also immigrating over with very little regulation. Germans, Irishmen, Scandinavians, etc. were all coming to these colonies as well with very little you know, sort of oversight from the British authorities. So you have this diversifying group of people who were, you know, bringing in new ideas, bringing in new ideas about how to govern themselves and sort of creating their own little echo chambers, and the British kind of let this happen. And the American colonies went from representing one-twentieth of the empire's population to representing one-fifth in the blink of an eye. But this fast-growing and now quickly deviating group of colonies would have their way of life changed in 1763 at the conclusion of the Seven Years' War, or as you might better know it as, the French and Indian War. So, let's back up a bit. There was a military leader for the British Army, and his name? Well, his name was George Washington. And this is a truly fascinating and often forgotten piece of history. But the man who would end up being the face of the American Revolution and the first president of the United States, you know, a man that's almost at God's status in the American psyche, might have been the spark before the fuse was even lit for the French and Indian War, which in itself was the spark in a powder keg that led to the new taxes, regulations, which led to the revolt, which led to revolution. Now, I'm not saying that Washington was some sort of Machiavellian genius who sparked this conflict so that in 20 years or so he, he's going to have another one break out for independence, but no. But listen here. So in 1754, George Washington led a surprise attack on a small French force, at Jumonville Glen. But this is a frontier area, and it's relatively deep into French territory, and he ends up having to surrender to French forces at the Battle of Fort Necessity which sparks a very large British retaliation, and this helps kick off the French and Indian War. And the following year, Washington, I guess, is back with the British, accompanied by Major General Edward Brandock and his ill-fated march on Fort Dukens. Again, I don't speak French. Pardon my mispronunciation of, of a relatively beautiful language. So, one, Washington, first off, loses twice, his first defeat kicks off what ends up being essentially a world war between two empires and then loses again. So, the sort of lure that he's some military genius and he's a god, you know, this is a little chink in that armor. But, two, the conclusion of this war that he inadvertently kicks off causes the crown and colony relationship to never be the same again. Now, I'm not going to get into this war at all, really, and I, you know, sort of pick up here at the signing of the Peace of Paris in 1763, but if you want to read about the French and Indian War, it's a fascinating conflict, and you can read more about it. Just look it up or find some good books. But this Peace of Paris in 1763, the quote-unquote peace terms between the two empires, that's what it sort of is, and now this Paris, the Peace of Paris, according to Gordon S. Wood, quote, gave Britain undisputed dominance over the eastern half of North America, end quote. And he goes on to point out that, quote, Britain acquired huge chunks of territory in the New World, all of Canada, East and West Florida, and millions of fertile acres between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River, quote. And that brings us to these fertile acres. With a surging population, the people who were once confined to this thin strip along the coast began to look west for new lands, Soil in the East began to get grossly overcultivated. Poverty in whatever sort of pseudo-urban areas the colonies had was starting to rise. You know, in Philadelphia, the poverty rate was like one, one-eighth of, this, of the population was, was in poverty. So with the French defeated in these new lands to the West, many civilians began to, well, migrate West. And I'll keep in mind before I continue that West isn't modern day perception of Western America. This is not like Oregon or the Midwest. But for them, West was more like upstate New York in many cases. But between the years of 1749 to 1771, New York's population grew from a measly 73,483 to 168,007. And I'll keep in mind that this is also not New York City. This is the entire state. And at the same time, however, the Carolinas began to boom as did Pennsylvania. People began establishing new towns left and right. You know, 264 to be exact were established in New England, you know, from Maine to Massachusetts, from 1760 to 1776. And with this, land speculation began to become a very lucrative business. Many people, including Benjamin Franklin, had large speculations of land not just in West- western Pennsylvania, but west of the Appalachian Mountains. Something that seemed more and more attractive as hunters and trappers sort of carved out trails through this tricky range and into these fertile lands that were relatively uninhabited. But this constant moving was so jarring that one British official remarked that they were quote, moving as the avidity and restlessness incite them. They require no attachment to place, but wandering about sees engrafted in their nature as it is a weakness incident to it that they, should ever, that they should forever imagine the lands further off are still better than those upon they've already settled, end quote. So essentially what he's saying is that, you know, these American people, no matter how good the lands they have right now, sort of the expression that the grass is always greener on the other side, that sort of mentality begins to really start to play a role in the American mindset. And it sort of kerfuffles the British officials in how they do it. But these new settlements further and further off the beaten path created two huge issues for the governing British. First, it was simply harder to police and regulate towns that were farther and farther away and tucked away in these nooks and crannies of the frontier. Second, the defeat of the French meant that the British were now the sole and direct controlling power with native affairs. So colonists and settlers pushing west began to impede on native land that had once been protected by the French. Now, the French were not saints in their treatment of natives, but they were mainly using their land for pelts and trapping, um, and never really settled in the areas the way the British did in theirs. And the British, looking at this rising conflict between the colonies and the natives, you know, sort of implanted two British officials, one in the north and one in the south, whose job it was was to keep peace with what one superintendent described, quote, as the most formidable of any uncivilized body of people in the world, end quote. And of course he's talking about keeping peace with the Native Americans. Now largely disease had wiped out up to 92% of all the native populations. And these were not one unified peoples. It was not one large native group that was sort of formed as a sovereign state. There was a lot of infighting. But now with just the British, there was one common enemy. And as we know, one common enemy can make a lot of people who once were, you know, kind of not friendly with each other, very friendly with each other. And this led to tens of thousands of elite warriors from now all along the frontier lines of the Appalachians. But speculators continued to pay these warriors no mind. But this changed when the British tried to take over some of the old abandoned French forts on the frontier, and quickly several tribes, again with this common enemy, united under Ottawa chief Pontiac. And they destroyed all but three of these British forts. But they weren't done yet. They began to move east through the backcountry and ended up killing 2,000 colonists from Pennsylvania down to Virginia, so the decision was made to hold a standing army in the colonies to maintain order. As you can see, the dominoes here are starting to line up. It's not some sort of great Machiavellian scheme, but it's a series of decisions and causes and reactions that are creating what we are going to see as a full-fledged revolution in the future. But native tribesmen were not the only ones in the backcountry that were revolting. Some settlers in the 1760s, as imperial authority in their eyes was hogwash, rose in arms because they believed that they were being, quote, exploited by eastern governments, end quote. And that eastern government, of course, is the British crown. But even with this cracking relationship, the colony's economy was booming, and trade with England was huge huge, and this is sort of before, during, and after the French and Indian War, with trade hitting up to over a million British pounds yearly by 1765. Tobacco, grain, and other foodstuffs were being imported by Britain more than it was exporting them. This boom led to a huge increase in the standard of living to these otherwise, you know, backward colonies, um, all attributed to this new economic boom. Now, here's a great example. Benjamin Franklin, who we all know, you know, pull out a wallet, maybe you'll see a $100 bill if you're lucky, and you see his face on it. He's clearly an important figure. But in his autobiography, he explains that his wife surprised him one morning with, quote, some new replacements for his pewter spoon and earthen bowl by purchasing items simply because she thought that I deserved a silver spoon in a china bowl as well as any of my neighbors, end quote. Now, this is great because it's a historical figure that we can all sort of know what he looks like. You get some sort of myth around him. But here you can see that this consumer boom is happening, and it's happening to all Americans. And this sort of consumer revolution further implored the crown to get on top of its regulation of the colonies. Because one important fact still remained. The colonists still preferred British goods. Now, this is a taste that would later be used against the British, but it was another key seed for the revolution. And another key seed was the invention of the full-on post office, which again, established by Benjamin Franklin. Now, this cut down on communication times in half. We dec- we sort of take for granted how easy it is to communicate these days, and we sort of have been for the last couple hundred years. You know, we couldn't send text a hundred years ago, but a telegraph could get very important news to you very quickly. Now, if something big happened in America, in the, you know, in the colonies, it wouldn't get back to the British Crown for weeks, if not months. And even in the colonies, if something big happened in Baltimore and you're trying to people were trying to hear about it in in North Carolina, it could take six weeks. But this post office with these new roads cut down the communication time in half. And this, along with those better roads allowed for the pushes for more domestic goods being purchased and more reliable and accurate information about the market to exist and be circulated in the United States. Well, in the colonies, which would later become the United States. But back to the crown. So after this costly war with France and a slowly crumbling colonist and native relationship as well as booming trade, the debt pushed the crown to act on long delayed plans to reorganize its empire. But first, on the proverbial grocery list for the crown, was to reorganize their new territories that they had won from the French. Governments had to be created, native trade had to be regulated, and all the erroneous land claims from all over the area had to be sorted out. And most importantly, something had to be done to stop the settlers and the natives from engaging in full-scale open war. As you can see, there's a lot for the British to do. But on top of all of this, the war created a tremendous debt, a debt that totaled 137 million pounds with a jarring interest of 5 million pounds a year. And that doesn't sound too bad today. You sort of compare it to modern money. Remember, this isn't their money. So obviously, when you inflate it to today's value, it's a lot more. I actually don't know the calculation. I'm sorry. Should have prepared better. But that doesn't seem too bad. But when you compare this debt to their annual peacetime budget, which was just 8 million pounds, you begin to realize that the interest alone is suffocating. And because these lands were well new, and there was growing friction with the natives and colonists, Lord Jeffrey Amherst, who was commander-in-chief of North America, estimated that he would need 10,000 regulars as a standing force to keep the peace and deal with, quote, squatters, smugglers, and bandits, end quote. And this army, also, by the way, costs £300,000 a year to field. So the obvious thing to do would be to tax the people who are actually the main source of all this trouble, you know, pay for your own protection, pay for the war that we, you know, won to give you these new lands. Well, actually, at first, that was not the case. The crown was actually taxing British people to the wall. Now, for example, there was a steep cider tax, and the British gentry were being squeezed unbelievably hard by this. Now soon in England riots and disorder began to unfold. And this was only made worse by traders, you know, returning from returning from trading with the with the Americas, coming back to a pressurized and tumultuous England with tales of the colonies prospering to no end. So the Crown did what seemed to be the reasonable thing, and that's get control back. And this meant to seek revenue streams from the colonies, meaning that they had sort of a Something that they had sort of neglected to do for a long time. And the first thing they had to do was make the navigation system, quote, more efficient in ways that the royal officials had long sought to do, end quote. But as Edmund Burke put it, quote, solitary neglect had ended, end quote. Remember, the colonists had almost been completely neglected and left to their own devices. They had gotten their own trade systems put together. Their own way of life sort of was beginning to unfold. And now that was ending. But this is where things begin to get messy. Because King George III decided to not go along with Parliament's plans of regaining control of the colonies and opening up revenue streams in the ways that they wanted. Instead, he went and he passed William Pitt and the Duke of Newcastle. Now think of these figures like a Cato or Cicero if you're more apt in Roman history. These are sort of politicians who can sway um, their respective parliament or senate in many respects, uh, and in, really, in, in their case, they can run parliament. And instead, King George III picks people like Lord Boot, who aren't popular in parliament, by the way, and picks these people instead to lead the government. And quickly, he kicks off a decade of short-lived ministries and short-lived government leaders, all while the British have to hastily get things going in North America leading to chaotic acts that are, in theory, were the right thing to do. You know, we do need to tax the people. We do need to find ways to pay for these soldiers to stop a full-fledged war from breaking out. Obviously, the costs seem to, you know, the costs do not outweigh the benefits. But because of this terrible act of bureaucracy in execution, these are done horribly. Take the western limit. The British wanted to cordon off a border so white settlers would stop going west. You know, Just stop it in its tracks. We're going to draw a line along the Appalachian Mountains, and it says, you know, you can't go west of this. It's this the proclamation line. You have all the land of the east. Natives get all the land of the west, and there'll be no conflict. That's our way of stopping a potential war. And we have, of course, they have the soldiers to do it. But this was hastily drawn and led to a bunch of settlers being caught in now native land which led to a lot of confusion not just from the government but from people in the colonies of what to do and by 1767 no one was really in charge at all only charles townsend gave any sort of resemblance of a clear direction in regard to colonial policy but he ends up dying that same year that he was put in power And to make matters worse for England, in the 1760s, Ireland began to get restless. So now the British, who are attempting to regain control of this booming population thousands of miles away, has internal issues at home. And in Ireland, leading to more confusing policies and more jarring missteps that end up getting taken oh so hastily. The empire's authority and direction was now being hugely compromised, and this is seen in the figures of John Wilkes, who's a British figure, do not get him confused with John Wilkes Booth, this is not the man who assassinated Abraham Lincoln, but he was a political figure who was able to undermine the crown. So there was a populist figure, got voted in several times and parliament just said, no, we're not letting you take office here. And this gets the British people really riled up. And it gets them riled up beyond belief. Eventually he's instated finally, But this sort of goes to show that their own authority at home was being compromised. So there was a lot of work for the British to do, not just at home, but to also get the colonies in order. And again, it can be pretty difficult if your people at home are not in order. So while the land policies that they were putting in place were a complete disaster as a result of issues at home, Pontiac's rebellion, and a revolving door of ministers, sort of a changing leadership and constantly changing direction, but the trade policies were much more coherent, but they were no less angering to the colonists. The first big trade regulation came in 1764 in the form of the Sugar and Currency Acts. Now, this act imposed duties on foreign cloths, sugar, indigo, and coffee, as well as imported wine and molasses. And now these quickly yet rigidly imposed acts looked to destable the delicate yet complex trade networks that the colonies had developed independently in the last century. But the sort of the Sugar Act, according to then the Greenville's ministry, sort of became convinced that this first act was not going to get enough revenue. You know, the Sugar Act's great, but it's not going to do enough. And he pulled, and his ministry pulled on the government's sleeve to find other methods of extracting revenue from the colonies. But while he's asking for you know, new plans to get more money, eight colonial assemblies get together and write formal petitions to this new act on the bounds that it was causing economic injury and sent them to the royal authorities. Remember, the war created a lot of debt. And, you know, debt often can cause a little bit of depression. So the, econ- the economy was booming, trade was doing well, but there were still a lot of regions that were suffering economically. And putting these regulations on sugar and all these other goods, in their eyes, put a lot of pressure on them. And it was already getting really hard to sort of do it. And what made it even more difficult was that paying for these taxes had to be paid in British sterling. That was part of the Currency Act of this. A lot of the colonies probably due to this neglect, were issuing their own paper money. But that was not accepted by the British crown. So you're already pressed to the wall because you have a depression after the war. You're getting your goods tax, which is putting even more pressure on you. And now you can't pay it in the money that you actually have. You have to pay it in British sterling, which you probably don't actually have. So they write this petition. They send them out to the royal authorities. But these petitions are outright ignored. And this only makes matters worse. So these acts are ignored, but in 1765, as if they have no sort of way to be in touch with the sort of colonial mindsets, in 1765, the next year, Parliament passed the Stamp Act in the face of these petitions, and this was the act that really lit the fire in the hearts of the colonists. This act levied taxes on all legal documents, all almanacs, newspapers, and literally every kind of paper that was going to be used in the colonies. But one of the big, maybe, missteps which rubbed salt in the wounds of the colonists again was again that they were supposed to be paid, these sort of duties were to be paid in British sterling, not the colonial paper money that many of the colonists had begun to use as the regular currency. Now, this act, according to Gordon Wood, quote, galvanized colonial opinion as nothing ever had, end quote. And according to William Smith Jr., a New Yorker at the time, quote, this single stroke, has lost Great Britain the affection of all her colonies." End quote. Now merchants and traders began to organize, to sort of fight these, this, these acts. And the main thing they did, the main idea was to stop importation of British goods. Just stop it, buy at home, and we're gonna squeeze the British government and hurt them economically so that they're gonna pull these acts back. And the resentment here begins to boil over. And another New Yorker says, quote, these designing parasites who have invited despotism to cross the ocean and fix her abode in this once happy land, end quote. So you have merchants and stuff using these new roads and this new postal system to stop importation of British goods. And at the same time, there's just general disdain for the British despots coming across the ocean and squandering in their eyes what was once a happy land and making this happy land not happy and this is hitting everyone across the colonies however while I've had a lot of quotes about new york the most striking act came from the virginia house of burgesses and their new resolves and the man who led these resolves was a man named patrick henry now you may recognize the name patrick henry um, but sort of his more famous quotes that we'll get into later don't happen yet. So right now, he's simply a man in the Virginia House of Burgesses, and he is a politician who, at the age of 29 at this house, declared that he did not doubt that Americans would stand up for his land in the face of this new tyranny. Now, Henry actually ends up getting cut short. Uh, so the Speaker of the House realizes what he is saying is borderline treason. Is like, oh my God, oh my gosh, stop talking. But newspapers still printed these resolves. And many Americans essentially went under the impression that Virginia, which was usually the calmest and easiest colony for the British to work with, it was wealthy, it was it was ginormous. You remember it included West Virginia back then, and allegedly with some land claims, claimed land all the way to Ohio, but that's a that's a different time. But this colony had always been very stable, had always been sort of a crown jewel, sort of say, along with side of Pennsylvania. But in their eyes, they had essentially asserted their own legislative independence from England. Yikes. Now, the colonies tried again to defend against these acts diplomatically, as 37 delegates from now 9 colonies met in New York and formed the Stamp Act Congress in October of 1765. And just like the Sugar Act Congress, they wrote petitions against it, sent them to the royal officials, And again, didn't seem to make a huge difference. However, it was the mob violence and the mob mentality that truly did the Stamp Act in. A year before, in August of 1765, a mob broke into Andrew Oliver's home and office. Now, he was the stamp distributor in Massachusetts, and they tore his home and office apart. You know, two separate locations, went and destroyed it. Um, And yeah, he quickly gave in and promised to stop enforcing the Stamp Act, you know, out of his own safety. Now, from North Carolina... In South Carolina all the way up to New England, similar threats of violence and acts of violence were actually carried out and tons of fraternal bodies began to form. So you know, a bunch of merchants would get together, or artisans would get together and they'd form these groups and collectively were known as the Sons of Liberty. You've probably heard of this group if you've done a little bit more advanced American history, but this group sort of pressured judges to step down. They burned effigies of royal officials. They pushed businesses to carry on without stamps, sort of making systems work. You know, just go around this this act. And most importantly, they also developed the intercolonial communication network that pushed for the boycott and non-importation of British goods. So they're doing all this stuff, borderline terrorism. The biggest thing you probably might have heard of is tar and feathering, where you know they would take. Hot tar, throw it onto a tax collector, and then throw feathers on him. Pretty barbaric stuff, honestly not going to lie. Sort of feeds into the idea that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Uh, getting hot tar put all over you is, is a pretty bad way, and some actually died, but a lot were able to still survive. But this communication network they set up was vital. These colonies were not united. They are not the United States of America. They were sort of separate colonies under different governor rule all under the British crown, but now they had these networks that connected like-minded individuals and helped them push their idea not just their ideas, but also their sort of pseudo-policies, for instance, like the non-importation of British goods. So in 1766, Britain repeals the Stamp Act and passes the Declaratory Act. Remember, these ministries, like the one under Greenville, were not popular with Parliament. King George III was essentially not picking people that were popular with Parliament to sort of make a statement, maybe. So after seeing this total mess after the Stamp Act, and eager to discredit this ministry, and the fact that many of these people in Parliament had many of their backers that were merchants that were really hurt by these boycotts. So on one hand, they want to they want to delegitimize someone they don't like. Well, they don't like hate Greenville, but they don't appreciate his policies. They, they don't like being gone around. Uh, And also, a lot of their backers were people being hurt by this, so they ended up repealing the Stamp Act in 1766. But they tried to save some face, and they issued something known as the Declaratory Act. With this act, they tried to make it clear that, quote, Parliament has the right to legislate for the colonies in all cases whatsoever, end quote. But the relationship and the authority between the Crown and the colonies would never be the same again after the Stamp Act. No declaratory act, no statement of power could ever fix the damage that had just been done. Now the British became aware that the colonies were not going to take in any direct tax. You know, the Stamp Act was a direct tax on the people, but the government still needed revenue. I mean, they still needed it. It was they had a lot of debt. They had a Pay for the soldiers that were there. Pay for the debt from the war. They also need to pay for other day-to-day activities of the government. And they look to do it in more indirect ways, like the Sugar Act, which was actually still going. And this leads to the 1767 passing of the Townsend Acts. But these new revenue streams through the Townsend Acts were a drop in a big empty bucket, and yet more had to be done. So they're doing all these far-reaching acts, and they're trying to sort of not anger the colonists because remember... They're still part of the empire, they're still considered part of the motherland. So if they end up having problems, they need to make sure that they still keep them within the government. They're not enemy soldiers, the American civilians are not an enemy, they're supposed to be part of it. So you have to try to appease them in a way, not make them go crazy, but trying to go around them is leading to not a lot being actually done. So what they end up doing is they end up being, they end up creating a bunch of new positions. The American Board of Customs is created in Boston, and it's meant to report directly to the treasury. New vice admiralty courts are established, there's like three of them, I think, to be exact, and a new secretary of state position in the British government was made just for relationships with the American colonies. So they're really taking this and, you know, went from being sort of a backwater colony, put some people, some Puritans go there, they do their own thing, whatever, but now it makes up one fifth of the population now it's costing us a lot of money, so they have to really try to change the relationship with the colonies. Now, furthermore, to save money, the standing forces that they had sort of on the frontier, these retreated from the frontiers to save money. And because of the Quartering Act, which they had put in a year before, the colonists were forced to house these troops which were now stationed in these coastal, you know, pseudo, maybe fully urban areas. Now, obviously, immediate results um, occur from pulling the troops back. This immediately causes colonial and native conflict, but also scared the American people as now a British standing army was sitting amongst the civilians. And this really deepens mistrust and fears amongst the American people. Remember, they were already starting to distrust authority. They were already starting to think that the British Parliament didn't have that authority. Now, seeing a standing army outside your front door, maybe even knocking on your front door and and making you have them in your home. That's going to be a real problem for the American people. And this can be seen because when one of the pamphlets that goes around, so pamphlets are a big deal. New communication network, it's easy to spread ideas. One of the things is called the Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania. And the same year, this is published. And it declared that all taxes levied for the purpose of just raising revenue were wrong, and the government had no right to do as such. And remember, this is spreading. They are printing this and spreading it all over every single colony. Before, when it was hard to get to someone in a different city without taking weeks, if it even gets there, now they're getting it relatively quickly. And also in 1768, the circular letter by Samuel Adams is composed. But Lord Hillsborough, who was a staunch loyalist, he demanded that the Massachusetts House revoke this letter. And this letter sort of stated their grievances with these new laws and the quartering of soldiers, But he was denied by a vote of 92-17, to which led him to shutter the house down, closing their government, temporarily suspending it. But this only causes more outrage. So he's trying to stop the bleeding, and this seems to be something the British government keeps doing. They keep trying to stop the bleeding, and it only infuriates the people more. Only gives them more reason to keep doing what they're doing. And Massachusetts ends up becoming the center of this resistance to royal authority, as seen in the fact that they lead the movement of non-importation. You have to understand that Port of Boston is a very important port for the United States. Well, for the colonies. I keep saying United States, forgive me. I mean the colonies. They are not united yet. That is the whole point of this podcast. But to make this sort of system work, you know, of non-importation, Americans had to make up for the loss of goods that would otherwise have come from England. And that's where the Daughters of Liberty stepped in. I know I want to talk about more female characters in this story, and trust me, I will get to them. But we have to understand that this is a very patriarchal society. And unfortunately, women are put in positions where they're not able to always make the biggest difference that they want, and they're oftentimes being forced to be subjugated to men. They don't vote, that was that didn't end up happening for almost a hundred plus years later. But women play a crucial role here. Women begin holding spinning bees which ended up causing mass production of cloth on the home front. So when they decided to not import British goods, most people wanted to wear Irish linen. Most people wanted to wear stuff from England. It was the sort of a trade network that was already working. But these spinning bees helped create the clothes necessary to have domestic goods in the first place. And back to Samuel Adams, though. So we have the spinning bees and we have the mass production, but you need also leaders. And Samuel Adams, the man who composed the circular letter, becomes an outspoken leader and Boston becomes a hotbed, which in 1768 leads British troops to be sent directly to Boston. Now, mobs there begin attacking custom officials, and they made it virtually impossible for the British to enforce the navigation regulations. These, Remember, these were the first ones they wanted to put in. They're relatively benign. They just want to get the order back into their colonies. They want to make a system again. But these mobs make it so hard for them to do it that they end up calling on military backup. Now, a warship ends up arriving in the port of Boston in June of 1768, and they seize John Hancock's boat called Liberty. Which, of course, is ironic. You know, the British were being accused of being tyrannical or seizing the American boat named Liberty. And the reason was for violations against navigation laws. And Yeah, he broke the navigation laws, but this was really intended to be a clear message of royal authority. But again, it ended up sparking backlash. And not just backlash, this ends up sparking one of the biggest riots in Boston's history, and they've had many. And it begins to raise the question of who really has authority here because Boston only gets crazier. Two years later in 1770, probably the most misunderstood event in American history occurs, the Boston Massacre. We've all sort of seen Paul Revere's etching. If you haven't, you actually probably still have. It's the famous etching you think it might be a sketch. It's actually a, an etching into a piece of rubber so it can be printed really easy. Again, mass communication was big here. Sort of a piece of propaganda is that Paul Revere etches you know, a bunch of stone-cold British regulars pointing their rifles at a bunch of innocent people as the dead lay on the ground, with the caption, Boston Massacre. And Paul Revere's etching becomes immortalized. It gets spread all over the colonies, makes it there faster than the real story can. Just like a game of telephone, the story only becomes more crazy as it gets passed from person to person, And it's not just a circle of people here. This is a person-to-person that happens so many times it makes it to all the colonies. Two million people, to be exact, are in these colonies. But what really happens is a little different. What ends up happening is that eight people, sort of the same mob mentality we talked about earlier, eight people begin harassing British guards. Some of the reports say that they might have been packing snowballs with stones. It goes from being regular sort of harassment to... Maybe threats of violence and things end up getting crazy, and all we know is that shots end up getting fired into this crowd, and five people lay dead at the end. And this event becomes immortalized through this etching, and it further instills American resentment for the British crown. Now, in that same year, the Townsend Act is repealed, but not the duty on tea. And three years later, Massachusetts Governor Hutchinson, he argues the supremacy of Parliament before the general court there to deaf ears. And in 1773, the Tea Act is implemented, where the British are going to tax tea. It's sort of a duty on tea. And this creates another one of the most famous pre-revolution events in the history of this country. So the Boston Tea Party, essentially, they had a boat came in from, from England carrying tea. And the story goes that Sons of Liberty members, remember the fraternal order we had mentioned, dressed up as natives, boarded a boat that was carrying this tea, and then just threw it into the harbor. Sort of a big sign to the, to the British because tea to them was very important. It was a cultural staple. And also it was some of their goods, and they were just throwing it in the water and wasting it. It wasn't like they were stealing it for their own use. They were throwing it into the water because they didn't want British goods. They didn't want that in there you know, pseudo-country, and that was a huge statement and a huge rallying cry to those around it that essentially said, we mean business, you know, we're not going to take it and then just not pay for it and we'll show you, no, they just throw it away, so clearly the reorganization of these colonies is an utter shambles, you have tea being thrown into the harbor, you have massacres or massacres in quotes happening, and soon the cost of actually getting the revenue from the colonies was now exceeding the actual revenues itself. Lord North in 1774 recognizes this problem and in front of Parliament in England announces that, quote, we are now to establish our authority or give it up entirely, end quote. And in 1774, that same year, they heed his words and Parliament passes a coercive act and the Quebec Act. The coercive act was essentially telling Boston You've had your fun. This act shuts down Boston Harbor until the tea was paid for in full. It reorganized that colony of Massachusetts government and their their structure. Town meetings became restricted, and it also allowed for officials charged with capital offenses to be extradited to England for trial. Now, the Quebec Act is sort of second to the coercive acts, and it really did nothing other than just allow for the already present French Catholics, you know, modern-day Quebec, to just stay where they are. But this, also angered the colonists because it made them think that the government that was sworn to protect them was propagating an enemy catholic french people to in the north to threaten them and it was essentially letting a historical enemy of you stay where they are and pose a threat so these acts you know if the stamp act was the fuse the course of acts were the powder keg the american people were now convinced That Parliament didn't just have a right to tax them, but also had no right to govern them. And the governing aspect is what the coercive acts were. And England is realizing this problem. And in 1765, the next couple years, there's an imperial debate. And there's a debate in England on whether or not to give in to the demands of representation in Parliament. But they concluded at the very end that the American colonies were already getting what they called virtual representation, an argument that was previously made in the country to justify how even in England, only a small portion of the country actually got representation at all. And this gave Parliament its sovereignty and supremacy. Remember, a century and a half of being left alone changed American colonists and what their perception on authority should be and what representation should look like. But the final argument of Parliament was that the Empire was one unified community. And that it was absurd and pointless in the American nitpicking of internal and external regulations and these random spheres of authority that they're creating of their own town halls and their houses. Because according to royal official William Knox, quote, if Parliament in even one instance was as supreme over the colonists as it was over the people of England, then the Americans were members of the same community with the people of England. And he continues and says, and that, quote, if it's denied once, it must be denied in all instances, end quote. And he continues by saying, quote, there is no alternative, either the colonies are a part of Great Britain or they are in a state of nature with respect to her and in no case can be subject to the jurisdiction of that legislative power which represents her community, which is the British Parliament, end quote. And this is the big idea that they British are trying to instill in the American colonists that there is one supreme authority. It doesn't work if there's different authorities. And they're saying, look at us in England. They, this is the representation they get. You're getting the same. We're protecting you. We are having trade with you. You are part of our community. And this begins to create an identity crisis. Because in the British eyes, there can't be two separate powers if we're going to be the one Great Britain which is their argument that there's one Great Britain and there's one supreme power within Great Britain, that's the crown and parliament. But the colonists took that to heart and essentially said, fine, there'll be two separate powers. We just won't be a part of England. And that's where the revolution begins to take its first shape. Now, I kind of neglected this next event. So the first Continental Congress met a few years before, and they were sort of talking about the problems of the day, sort of like the Stamp Act Congress. They were colonial leaders who got together to sort of talk about their collective troubles. But the second Continental Congress, again, in an important but, again, relatively forgotten piece of history, signed something called the Olive Branch Petition. And the Olive Branch Petition, which was signed in 1775, swore direct allegiance to the king. Our leaders like Thomas Jefferson And John Hancock signed a document saying that they swore allegiance to the king and even gave him an out by blaming all the troubles and the issues on, quote, artful and cruel ministers, end quote. But it also went on to state how there was no design whatsoever to take up arms, to get violent, and to actually engage in a full-scale rebellion. And they sent this over the ocean to King George III. But that changes real quick because in april of that same year the revolution in many people's eyes begins the whole point of the course of acts as we sort of talked about before was to punish boston you know boston was the hotbed boston was the problem the idea was quarantine the problem and sort of been punishing and getting a handle on this port city they would severely undermine resistance. You know, this is the big problem, let's just stop them in their tracks because with this communication, with these etchings they're they're giving out, with the leadership that's living there, they're sort of poking the bear everywhere else and getting all the other colonies upset, so let's just stop them in their tracks. So what they, the British, see as a natural extension of this plan was to arrest rebel leaders, break up their bases, and generally reassert their dominance and their control and their supremacy over... Not just Massachusetts and not just Boston, but of the entire colony of Massachusetts once and for all. And they picked General Gage of the British Army to do this. But on April 18th and 19th, 1775, General Gage and his forces are informed of a weapons cache in Concord, Massachusetts. Now, Concord rests about 45 minutes now from northwest of Boston, and I've been there, and I've seen what they're about to see, because they were told of this weapons cache, and I've seen this exact building, it's incredible, you can still go there and see it, and I highly recommend doing it, because seeing history changes your perception of it, it makes it a lot more real. And So they were going to march from Boston to Concord with the intention of seizing this weapons cache and arresting some of their leaders, but rebel scouts find out what's happening. And most famously, Paul Revere. You've definitely might have heard of Paul Revere's Midnight Ride. It's a famous poem. You've it's sort of lure an American life. And if you're listening from abroad and you're not an American citizen, you didn't really learn this in, in school, you might have still heard of Paul Revere, the famous line, The British are coming, the British are coming. And he's, you know, running down to Concord, and he's telling everyone he gets to Concord and warns them. That wasn't really what happened. Paul Revere is actually part of a big network of communication. It was him and about, you know, up to 40 others sort of went out around Massachusetts to warn them of this impending operation that was going on to seize their stuff and to put an end to this, you know, silliness once and for all in the eyes of the British. So Paul Revere's writing never actually gets to Concord. He gets stopped by British officials, but others continue on. And they're able to warn leaders like Sam Adams and John Hancock to get out of Dodge. You know, they're coming. They get they someone gets to Sam Adams and John Hancock and they get out. So they're gonna not get captured. And that's important because again, we looked at in a lot of history. Movements, militaries, parties, countries, whatever, sometimes need their leaders to operate. That's the brain of the whole operation. If you lose the brain, the body, which is the general resistance of the colonists, would die with it. But what they also did is they did something a little more important so the farmers in the countryside of massachusetts were called Minutemen, and and there these people back then were armed with their squirrel guns and they were sort of skirmish fighters and these are the farmers and they were roused and took up arms now i've been to this city and what the british had to do was march through lexington to get to concord and they're marching in two columns and they get to a place called the lexington green now the british are actually late well maybe not late in their plan book But the Americans expected them to be there a little earlier. And what do any, you know, soldiers about to potentially engage in fire with the greatest army of all time do? They go to the Lexington Inn and Tavern and get absolutely hammered. Reports were that the Minutemen, they were ginned up, they were angry, they were singing tunes. And I've actually got the opportunity to go to this inn. You can literally go to the room and see the tables that they were sitting at. And yet one thing you'll notice is that they were a little shorter back then. The chairs looked like kids' chairs, but they were there, and they were drinking. And this British column arrives in Lexington. And the drunk, angry, armed people do what most drunk, angry people do, and they start being belligerent. And they make it impossible for the British columns, which, are, by the way, massively outnumber these Minutemen. what they're doing is they're trying to stall so they can make proper defense measures and get some of the weapons out of the cache that they're going to go to and destroy if they don't stop the British. And they get into a fight. Shots ring out and no one knows who fired the first shot. But it's easy to assume that when you have a, uh, a military force like the British who fire in very organized volleys they can reload quickly, that they're not the ones shooting off pot shots at a bunch of drunk people. If they were going to fire, they were most likely going to fire as they were trained to do in pressure situations to do it as a group. But a single shot rings out and all of a sudden, allegedly to most people, the revolution begins. In the end, and only one British regular dies and ten Americans die. And there's testimonies from people who watched it unfold. And all of it's a lot of it, really, is American lore and mythmaking. But that's what has to happen. You have to get the people galvanized to fight, you know, the greatest land. Well, maybe not the greatest land army. You know, I take that one back. They were the greatest navy with a relatively small army. But the army was still unbelievably well-trained and well-equipped. But this battle at Lexington Green gives the people of Concord enough time to get the weapons out, and to get the word out, that revolution is happening, and of course the British eventually wipe away this Minutemen group, these drunk drunk people, I mean they were hammered, these drunk farmers with their weapons, they're pushed to the side eventually, and the British continue to march on, but by the time they get to Concord, there's only like a couple things there, some bullets, maybe a musket or two, there's not a lot, lot there, so now the British, having openly engaged in combat with the Minutemen, have to turn around from Concord and walk all the way back to Boston. And this is where things really start to get dirty. The British, more or less, not defeated, they didn't really lose. Americans like to say that they won the Battle of Lexington and Concord. It was hardly a battle as much as skirmishes and... British people were killed, but the real victory, which we are going to take a victory out of it, was the sort of ambushed guerrilla tactics that they used. Now, as I talked about, the British were trained soldiers. The Americans really didn't have a chance of fighting them in an open field. You know, battles back then were fought. You had two armies line up. You exchanged volleys. And then the British, what they like to do is bayonet their muskets and then charge. You know, soften the enemy up with some and this tactic is old. You, this tactic is old and still being used. You know, you soften the enemy up with, you know, artillery or musket volley or whatever you would do for your day and age, and then you get close for the kill. The British had bayonets. The American Minutemen did not. The American Minutemen were not about to stand up in a line and and do a firing volley at them. You know, they tried at Lexington kind of, but it wasn't really that ordered. So the British are walking back and the only way to really engage with them is to do guerrilla tactics. So on this long road back to Boston, these minutemen begin taking up positions all along this road and taking pot shots at the soldiers. You know, crushing the morale of the British redcoats who thought this would be a very easy job for them to do and galvanizes even more support for taking up arms against the British authority. In the end, 273 British soldiers ended up dying, and 95 patriots had been killed or wounded, and this created. this caused the countryside of Massachusetts to be aflame with revolt. From Charleston to Dorchester, according to Gordon Wood, the colonists quickly surrounded and besieged the British in Boston and thus raised doubts among British authorities that the police action would be enough to quell the rebellion. And two months later, in 1775, the first true battle of the American Revolution takes place. And that is all for episode one of Patriots Rising. Thank you so much, and check back in for part two, where we pick up at Bunker Hill.